All right, so uh, tonight we have this wonderful passage. This is, a, in Bible commentaries, this is a passage that probably gets a lion's share of commentary. Pages and pages, volumes and volumes, and we have 25 or so minutes to discuss it. In order to get into it, I want you to imagine something with me, if you will. Imagine a boatload of refugees coming from a terrible country, a country where there's war, there's crime, there's oppression, there's no hope, no future. And this boat of refugees travels to a new place, a land that is beautiful, a land that is peaceful, a land that is prosperous, a land that is enormous with incredible variety and all kinds of treasures of wisdom and knowledge to find. So imagine that they're brought to this land, they're told of all the good things in this land, and they know all the things they leave behind. And then they get to this land and they come into port and the people who were supposed to sort of bring them in and introduce them and show them what they had and what was at their disposal and what they could do, don't take care of their responsibilities and these people are left in the port. Imagine this port. I mean, ports aren't great. The cities that are next to ports are great. But these people are stuck in the port. Maybe they're stuck on the boat. And there's this enormous land that is their right to explore. This enormous land that is their right to find out about. And they don't. They can't. They haven't found out about it. And so over time, some are like, well, if this is all it is, I'm going back. I mean, at least we had a little bit more there. Or they hear of other people saying other places are better and maybe they're going to try to go there, but those turn out to be worse. So they have this right in this invitation to this grand land that they're invited to live in and they don't. That's the fate that Paul does not want the Corinthians to fall into. That's the fate that he doesn't want them to experience. He knows that the Colossian believers have come into the most spectacular inheritance they could possibly come into. And he wants them to stay and he wants them to explore. He wants them to come into the fullness of it. He knows that a hundred lifetimes are not enough to explore all there is to see, to learn all there is to learn about this land that they've been graciously invited to come to. Paul knows that because they have Jesus Christ, as we sang about tonight, because they have him, they have everything. Because they have Christ, they have everything. Because all good gifts come from him. They are complete. They lack nothing because they have faith in Christ. So Paul knows they're complete, but he also, and this is his primary thrust in this book, he wants them to mature. They're complete, but not mature. They've been given access to everything that comes in Christ. But he knows that they have to explore. They have to grow up and mature. And his heart is that they would mature. His heart is that they would not stay stuck in port, but that they would go on and explore all the riches of Christ. And so that's the invitation that Paul has. That's, I think, what Paul has in mind is he knows they've been given the greatest inheritance one could ever be given. But he also knows there is danger that they'll fail to come into the fullness of that inheritance. 
So let's look at 15. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. If you've been around church at all, you know that mankind in the beginning was made in the image of God. And it's important that something like the rights of human beings that we celebrate in our country come from the fact that every person is made in the image of God. Every person has dignity because they're created by God. That right is founded on the fact that they're made in the image of God and not on anything else. One could ask what might happen in our country if increasingly people don't believe in God. The undergirding of the rights of humanity is eroding. But that's not the the thrust that I want to get to. The scriptures say we're made in the image of God. And Paul opens up to us a little bit more of what that means. Paul tells us more than what we typically think. He says specifically that we're made in the image of Christ. Mankind is made in the image of Jesus. We're not made in the image of the Trinity. We're not made in the image of the Father. But we're specifically made in the image of the Son because Jesus, the Son, is the perfect image of the Father. He is the one before time who reflected the character of God. Paul, well, I think Paul, the author of Hebrews, says in Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the representation of his essence, and he sustains all things by his powerful word. So the point is that when God made mankind in the beginning, he said, son, I want to make images of you in the earth because you are my perfect image. I want to make images of you in the earth. So when Paul says that Christ is the image of God, that's the image in which we were made. Why is this important? There's an early church father uh, who said, "Why why did God become man? Why did Christ become man? He said, well, one reason is because sin, mankind was meant to be the image of God. People were meant to be able to look at you and I and every person who's ever lived and know what God is like. But sin has marred that. It is like we are portraits of God, but that portrait has been covered over with dirt and mire. And so what did God do? He didn't get rid of the image, but he sent the subject of the painting to come again, Christ, to come and image the Father and restore the image in all of us. But but Paul says that Jesus is that image. He was with the Father before there was a before. He was with the Father, perfectly reflecting the Father in his character and in all his glory. Now, people have long wondered and debated, what is the most fundamental thing in the universe? What at the end of the day is there when nothing else is left? The ancient Greeks noticed that, well, people die, they they decay, they turn to dust. So... Maybe earth is what everything is made of. At the end of the day, when it all breaks down, it'll be earth. And they went on to fire, water, and air. 
But the scriptures and Paul tells us, no, at the root of everything, when everything is stripped back, what do we have? We have love. We have the Father. We have the Son. We have the Holy Spirit. When you strip back all of reality down to its constituent parts, the most fundamental thing you find is relationship. The most fundamental thing you find is love. The most fundamental thing you find is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul says here in these passages that Jesus, with the Father, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, made everything. Everything, everything made was made through Christ. Matter and energy. The physics that Oppenheimer and his, the, the scientists that studied with him, uh, learned about. Humanity, the animal kingdom, plants, everything. And, Paul says, even the unseen things. Angels, fallen angels, everything. There's nothing made that wasn't made by the Father in cooperation with the Son. Now, Paul's going to come back to these principalities, these powers, because he has some important things to say about them. But I want to stress right now what Paul says here is that Christ made it, God made it with him, and it was made for him. That means it belongs to him. He knows how it works. He knows what it's for. He's in charge of everything. And he says very clearly that if Christ took away his sustaining hand over creation, everything would dissipate into nothingness. That what upholds the universe, what upholds molecular bonds, what upholds quantum mechanics is the Son of God, the perfect image of the Father. So Paul is stressing here that Jesus is supreme in creation, that he's the king of creation, that he's the authority of creation. And then in verse 18, he turns a corner and he is the head of the body, the church. So Paul's going to say, look, Christ is preeminent in creation. He made it and it's for him. And then he's going to say, and Christ is preeminent in new creation. In what God did 2,000 years ago by sending his son to take on human flesh. That Jesus is preeminent in both. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul here shifts to what from creation to what happened 2000 years ago in Palestine when Jesus took on flesh. What Jesus was in creation, he is in new creation. He and his father worked in this, too. Sometimes the way the cross is preached is as if uh, somehow the father was unwilling or somehow there was this division between the father and the son. No, they worked together to accomplish human salvation. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the preview of where God wants to bring creation and all mankind. It is the first stage in what God is doing to set the world right and set everything in creation right. Jesus remains primary. He remains central. And part of what Paul wants to say is that there is no sphere in life in which Jesus is not master. You can't name an area over which he is not master. Physics, music, economics, 
relationships, chemistry, poetry. You can go on and on. He is the master of it all. That's why, incidentally, everything in creation, and I want you to think about this, is interesting. Everything. Now, you might think only geologists think rocks are interesting. But you know what? God made rocks. He made minerals. And the scripture tells us he enjoyed making them. Therefore, they're interesting. So as G.K. Chesterton said, there are no uninteresting things, only uninterested people. Only people who are bored. Perhaps because they're disconnected from the joy and the wonder in which God made everything. But there is nothing, no sphere of life over which Jesus does not hold sway and is not therefore fascinating if we could have eyes to see it. So Paul wants to say that if you have Christ, if you have faith in him, if you have been baptized, you have gone down into those waters, raised up to newness of life, you are complete. You lack nothing. You have everything you need, as Peter says in his letter, that everything you need for life and godliness is yours because Christ is yours. We have to believe that we have all that we need for life and godliness. Nothing is left out. And if anyone tells you, oh, I know you have Christ, but you need something else. Look out. They're trying to sell you something. They're trying to close you out of something. They might say, yes, yes, Jesus is important, but still, you need circumcision and then you'll be done. Or you need to be in this denomination or then you'll, and then you'll be done. Or you need to follow these regulations and rules that this church practices and then you'll be complete. And Paul will say, run, run, run. If you have Christ, you have everything. All is yours in Christ. Those people are saying, essentially, Christ is not enough. They're saying, essentially, it's, yes, Jesus, he's great, but there's more. There's something outside of him. Watch out, Paul says, verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. When mankind rebelled against God, it broke everything. When Adam and Eve decided not to trust God, and to walk away from their connection with God, everything fell apart. Man cut himself off from the branch that he was coming from. He cut himself off from the source of life. And so relationship with God and man broke down. But very quickly, as you pay attention to scriptures, relationship with man and woman broke down. And then shortly thereafter, siblings kill one another. And then shortly thereafter, humanity and the world in which they were meant to live in harmony, there's a breakdown of that relationship. And then you see people personally disintegrating. 
their own lives falling apart when their emotions war against their will or their bodies and the habits of their bodies war against their intentions, that people are individually broken apart and broken. We see nations fall apart, all from that first turning away from God. But Paul tells us here that God is reconciling all things through the cross of his son. That the key to it was the son's death on the cross. See, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just so individuals could get saved. It was so God could set everything in the, world, in the cosmos right. And that's what he's about. He accomplished that work on the cross. And all that has fallen apart, he intends to repair. He intends to repair marriages. He intends to help siblings love one another. He intends to help individuals be harmonious with the way God intended them to be. So Paul wants to say in this section, you're complete in Christ, but you're not mature yet. But if you simply stay, if you simply hold on to what you've been given in Christ, it just remains for you to stay and explore what God has done in Christ And you will be mature. You will grow up. You will continually progress in what God intended for you. Paul is obsessed all through his letters. I would suggest that the people of God grow up, that they come into their full inheritance in Christ, that they not cease to mature and grow. And for Paul, and this is Paul, it's so great. He talks about this vast thing that God has done in Christ, this vast cosmic thing. And what does he say they should do? Stay put. It's not super exciting. It's simply stay put. Stay put in Christ. Hold on to him. Receive life from him. Learn of him. And that will take care of everything. He knows there's all kinds of temptations that come to Christians to turn to something else, to turn to something that looks more exciting, to turn to something that looks more interesting. And he says, no, just hold on. Because to turn to anything else would be like going back to that terrible place they came from. Instead of moving on to explore the land that they've been invited to explore. So what Paul says is you guys need just the seemingly boring virtue of stability, of keeping at it, of holding on to Christ. Now notice, I'm not talking about staying put in any one church, although that can be a beautiful expression of the virtue of stability. I'm talking about staying put in Christ and connected to his people. Amen? So let me share two thoughts for us out of this passage. The first is this. It's very simple. Small is beautiful. In the cross of Jesus Christ, God is setting right everything that is wrong with the universe. And if you're in Christ, the little things in your life that you're working on are a part of that repair that he accomplished and is unfolding in the cross. Does that make sense? Siblings learning to love one another is a part of the repair of the cosmos that God is carrying out. Working on your health so that you more or less operate physically and emotionally and in every other way as God intended you to be 
is a part of his setting right of the cosmos. Working well, doing good work. Good work that you can be proud of at the end of the day. That is part of how God is setting the universe right. Small is beautiful. Does that make sense? It's this wonderful thing. Paul says, this vast cosmic thing, and you where you are learning to love, learning to serve, learning to do well, learning to receive from him life and grace and everything is all a part of what he's doing. See, we don't have to do everything. We just, have to, we just have to plow the ground he's given us. Does that make sense? And sometimes I think maybe it's an American thing. We're tempted to think we have to do so much. That's up to God to determine. That he gives us the things in our lives, our relationships, the people we're called to love. You learning to love people in church, learning to serve people in church that you don't like, that's a part of God's repair of the cosmos. Learn to give yourself to it and receive the grace in it. So small is beautiful. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Don't believe the hype. Stay in the land of Christ. Explore it. Don't fall prey to the temptations to think, oh, but somewhere else, maybe there's something a little bit more exciting. I don't know why, but when I was thinking about this, I thought about the Beatles. Because the Beatles that were the, you know, they're the product of in many ways, English history. But if you look at the Beatles, what you see is they're like those people in the port. They weren't introduced to the riches of Christ. They weren't, and I don't know if that's a, the fault of the church or what or culture, but they weren't introduced to the riches that are in Christ, so they were looking elsewhere. They were looking to Hinduism and other things. But see, they had access to the glorious riches of God in Christ. And again, maybe the church needs to ask, have we failed to introduce people to the full riches that the people of God have? Here's a couple of questions. Are you bored? I don't mean some, we're bored all the time with various things. But are you like bored down in your soul? I would suggest that you've forgotten the riches that are in Christ. And you haven't begun to explore what's there. Do you have no sense of meaning and purpose? Do you find yourself wanting to be caught up in something that's exciting, something that's interesting because you have no meaning and purpose in life? I want to suggest that there is a vast land to explore. And the people of God have only begun to scratch the surface. There are riches in Christ that are unimaginable. Let's do better as the people of God, calling people to those riches. Let's explore and help one another explore. There are always, there were in Paul's day and there are in our day, temptations to turn to spiritual novelties. You just get a little bored with stability. And, and people are interested in spiritual novelties of all kind. There will always be anxieties and fears over status in the community. Or requirements of how you're supposed to be in the community. There will always be temptation to pride over what you have achieved. Let's resist all those temptations and hold on to Christ and explore the riches we've been given in him. We have all we need. We've been given all we need in the Son of God. Paul says later in Colossians that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. 
why would we not dive in and explore that and bring that out into everything we do? Full human maturity, people becoming what God, you know, there's the old saw that you only use 10% of your brain. I don't know if that's true, but I know this, the only path to full human maturity, the full potential for the human race that God intends is in Christ and in coming to know him more and more. We're called to explore this land together now and forever. So let's set out and invite other people on that adventure. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up and we'll come to the Lord's table.